Hello everyone, it's Landon. I know you were looking forward to part two of fluid and electrolytes, but once Monique started talking, it became clear that part two then needed to become part three. So sorry that we referenced part two throughout it and some of it will be in part three, but basically part two is going to be feedback loops and some of the chemistry, and then part three will get into the actual electrolyte imbalances. All three parts are going to be beneficial, so happy listening. Good morning, Monique. Good morning, Landon. Welcome, everyone, to the Nursum podcast. Very exciting part two of fluid and electrolytes. And, you know, I was looking this morning because once in a while, the, the place that hosts our podcast sends me statistics. And so I looked this morning as to how many people have listened to us. Uh -oh. Over the seven years we've been doing this. It's not um, seven years. I think it is 2015, maybe 2016. I don't know. As the years wow. move on, they all blend together. But uh, as of this morning, we have had 797,568 downloads, Monique. No way. I know. That's terrifying. We should have charged a dollar. <laughs> That's what I think. Wow, we oh should have charged God. a dollar. <laughs> no. Remember how you and I think education should be education available. should be free. But free. you can always you can always buy us a cup of coffee at our website at nursum.org. We <laughs> have a little we have a little link there where you can donate to our cause. But uh, no, I don't like think the two we'll... of us need coffee to be more hyped up. I don't know totally. if that's a good can idea. Can you believe that, Monique? <laughs> Eight hundred thousand people. Have listened to us. Holy smokes. I know. I don't think I even know 800,000 people. Well, you do now. No, I eight, do now. 800,000 yes. people know you. <laughs> exactly. Well, anyway. welcome. Nice to meet you on our podcast then. I know. And it's funny. We can always tell when like a university nursing class or something like puts our podcast up because in one day we'll have like 5,000 downloads of oh, like my. the whole series. I'm like, oh, some university found us. <laughs> Well, anyway. we're glad. As long as, you know, um, people are getting good information and it's somehow helping to uh, support your practice and helps you to empower yourself as nurses and arming yourself with knowledge, we're happy. That's totally. what we're here for. And so fluid and electrolytes part two, this it, it's okay. interesting. I get like one email a day, which I know doesn't sound like a lot from people who go, you did part one, where the hell is part two? So, <laughs> so here's honestly, part two, everyone. So here's part two. Absolutely. So as promised, uh, we are going to review electrolytes, uh, particularly electrolyte imbalances in critically ill patients. So electrolyte disorders are common in adult patients in the ICU and have been associated with increased morbidity and mortality, as has the improper treatment of electrolyte disorders. So we're kind of actually going to talk about why are ICU patients more susceptible to fluid and electrolyte imbalances. And so many critically ill patients also receive fluid volume resuscitation as they often show signs of hypovolemia. And therefore the concern really that it, deep down is really cellular hyperperfusion. Often these patients are tachycardic, hypotensive. They're showing signs of acute kidney injury or multi-organ failure. So fluid replacement is almost a given for many of these patients. However, the amount and how quickly we give this fluid can lead to a whole set of complications, which we discussed last month, 
Giving fluids may be indicated, but being aggressive with fluid resuscitation with no objective clinical endpoints can lead to a host of other problems, including electrolyte imbalances. Uh, Landon and I are very much about objective clinical endpoints, right? Just because a little fluid is, is good doesn't mean a whole lot of fluid is good. We need to have some kind of clinical endpoints. We need to know what um, we're aiming for. Exactly. Now, critical disorders themselves can also lead to disturbances in fluid and electrolyte balance disorder or disturbances in fluid and electrolyte balance. There could be reduced perfusion to the kidney because of hypovolemia or hypotension. There could be active hormonal systems like the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and vasopressin. And there could actually be tubular damage to the, uh, due to ischemic kidney damage, uh, renal assault from the medications that are used in intensive care units. So frankly, electrolyte imbalances are common in critically ill patients. We are gonna focus uh, primarily on the most common, which is the sodium, potassium, calcium, phosphate, and magnesium imbalances. And just a side note, we do have a separate podcast on calcium, magnesium, phosphate, which is still our number one listened to podcast, interestingly enough, mm. probably because it's old. But uh, <laughs> so there may be some, there may be some cross information here, but you know what, just deal with it. Uh, you can learn it twice. And Landon, I'm surprised you, you, you mentioned all and there was no insult. I, I was waiting for it. I was preparing myself. Oh, it'll come. It'll come. Oh, okay. Okay. Just checking. So before we talk specifically about the electrolytes, it is important to do a little review about how these things regulate. And let's do a little bit of biology 101 and talk about feedback loops. And this is something that's really interesting that a lot of nurses I find once they kind of are enlightened to the feedback loop thing, they start looking for them and they amazingly find them and can easily identify. They may not know what is actually going on in the body, but they can start to make a loop that in their mind, they're going, hey, this is causing this, which is causing this. Oh my okay. goodness. That's, that's a feedback good. loop. <laughs> so, so there's two kinds of feedback loops, negative and positive feedback loops. So in our body feedback loops are biomod biological mechanisms whereby homeostasis is maintained, we hope, <laughs> typically through <laughs> negative feedback loops. Yeah. This happens when the product or an output of an event changes how our body responds to that reaction. So something happens, it then suppresses the mechanism of making that happen so that thing isn't happening again. So it shuts itself down basically once it's done its job. Positive feedback, that's a negative feedback loop, by the way. I'm going a little off script here. Monique's getting a horrific look on her face. No. Um, positive feedback loops occur to increase, to increase change or output. So we want the reaction to be amplified to make it occur more quickly. Again, like giving positive feedback. Mm -hmm. You're acknowledging that what they're doing is great. And so you want it to continue. Negative feedback occurs to reduce the change or output and get the system back to a stable state. So feedback loops are really the process whereby a change to the system results in an alarm, which can trigger a certain result. This result will either increase the change to the system or reduce it to bring it back to normal. And lots of our body systems have this. Okay, so uh, we're going to start with positive feedback loops because Monique wrote this section and she's an <laughs> optimist. She always has to be so positive. So positive feedback loop occurs when the product of a reaction leads to an increase in that reaction. It occurs when something needs to happen quickly. And a great example is blood clotting. That's actually a good one. I hadn't thought of that. 
So yeah. blood clotting, when tissue is torn or injured, a chemical is released. That chemical causes platelets in the blood to activate. Once they've activated, they cause more chemical, which signals more platelets to come until the wound is clotted, which at that point, there is then a negative feedback loop that will start yeah. to suppress that reaction. Most positive feedback loops uh, in the body are not good. We don't want something to run itself out of control and be this self-fulfilling prophecy. A good example of a positive feedback loop is anaphylaxis, for example, where an allergen or an antigen causes a large amount of mast cell depolarization, which then causes more of the reaction and more mast cell depolarization. Another good one is hypoxia that causes acidosis, which causes blood vessel constriction, which causes more hypoxia, which causes more acidosis. Most positive feedback loops that you can find in the body only lead to death of the organism. With now, and I've been teaching this for years, and now I've always said it always leads to death of the organism. And now you've pointed out blood clotting and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to change my messaging there. Uh, so all except blood clotting uh, will lead to death. So let's talk about a negative feedback loop. These are way more common in the body. And this is a, a negative feedback loop is one of the more important things about how our body system stays in control. So Monique likes to be politically correct. She wants to call them constructive feedback loops, not <laughs> negative feedback loops. You're becoming quite the millennial there, Monique, in your old well, age. Well, you know, uh, I think uh, that, you know how, you no, know how. No bad in, words. In life, well, in life, you know, you, many people can give you positive feedback, but that one negative feedback is the one that sits with you. So hundred people could tell you they love you, but the one person who says they don't, you're like, but why? What have I done? What can I do? See, just saying. Just saying. <laughs> so in the scientific context, yeah. negative feedback loops um, are also called inhibitory loops and they are just self-regulating. So basically in the negative feedback loop, the stimulus occurs, it releases something which causes a change in the body. That change in the body then sends a message back to stop that, say hormone being released. And once that hormone starts to go down, the change calms down and it may go down to a point where it needs to change again. So it releases more hormone, which causes the whole thing to start again. But really it's the self-limiting circle, unlike positive feedback loop that runs itself out of control until right. acted upon. So let's have some examples. So why, don't you you give, example why don't you give us that. an example? Yeah. Well, I've actually heard it. So blood pressure regulation, right? So blood pressure needs to remain high enough to pump blood to all parts of your body, but not so high as to cause damage while doing its work uh, to keep the head, oh, sorry, to keep the heart pumping. So baroreceptors detect the pressure of the blood going through the arteries. If the pressure is too high or too low, a chemical signal is sent to the brain. Uh, this then sends a chemical signal to the heart to adjust the rate of pumping. If blood pressure decreases, heart rate increases. Uh, while if blood pressure is high, heart rate decreases. Pretty simple. That's a negative feedback loop, right? Because it's kind of like a factory. If it's got too much, it slows down, right? If it's got too little, it speeds up. So another example, which is a little more in keeping with our topic is osmoregulation, which refers to the control of the concentration of various fluids within the body. Osmoregulation is used to keep body fluids from being too dilute or too concentrated. Most of the body's sodium is located in blood and in the fluid around cells. 
Fluids enter our bodies through drinking and eating. And because the concentrative of sodium is higher outside the cell, the fluid leaves the cells into extracellular space and the sodium enters the cell. Because we now have too much sodium inside the cell, we must excrete some through the urine or through the skin like sweating until there's a balance again and the correct sodium concentration is maintained. When individuals have problems maintaining these systems, it may be because of a disease state uh, that affects the, responsive, the responsible negative feedback loop. So for example, in diabetes, the pancreas does not respond properly to high blood sugar by producing more insulin. In type one, this is because there are no cells available to make insulin. A person's immune system has damaged or destroyed the factory. And in type two, this is because the pancreas is not as sensitive to blood sugar signals from the body. Therefore, it doesn't produce enough insulin in response to blood sugar rises. In either case, the person is no longer able to maintain homeostasis in their blood sugar system without some medical intervention. So the last word about feedback loops. In general, homeostasis is brought about by the natural resistance to change when already in an optimum state. And equilibrium is maintained uh, through many regulatory mechanisms. Feedback loops contain three interdependent components, a receptor, a control center, and an effector. The receptor is the sensing component that monitors and responds to changes in the environment, like thermal receptors, baroreceptors. Control centers, where the message is delivered from the receptor, include the respiratory system, the brain, the renin-angiotensin system, which we'll talk about later, and then the effector is the target acted on to bring about the change back to the normal state. For example, the platelets in blood clotting or the kidneys in osmoregulation. Wow. So that was a bit of biology, a little bit of physics there too. Yeah. Um, let's, let's move on to anatomy and physiology. And it really is all about the kidneys in this whole electrolyte. I can't Fluid electrolyte thing. Yeah. Yeah. So first we're going to talk about the kidneys. The kidneys play a vital role in fluid and electrolyte balance. If they don't work properly, the body has great difficulty controlling fluid balance. The kidney, actually specifically the nephron, is where water and electrolytes are either excreted or retained according to the body's needs. If the body loses even one to 2% of its fluid, the kidneys take steps to conserve water. Perhaps the most important step involves reabsorbing more water. The kidneys must continue to excrete at least 20 mils of urine every hour to eliminate the body's wastes. And a urine excretion rate that's less than 20 mils per hour usually indicates renal pathology, which is often why we look at renal output as a sign of cellular perfusion. And we, we use that 20 mils per hour very loosely. Um, obviously, certain patient types, you may want that to be higher, like rhabdomyolysis or, or some burn patients. But generally, when we're talking about normal human walking down the street, that's about what we want. In addition to the kidneys, other organs and glands are essential to maintaining fluid and electrolyte balance. Sodium, potassium, chloride, and water are also lost from the GI tract. However, they are also absorbed from the GI tract. We'll talk a bit about that later. The parathyroid gland also plays a role in electrolyte balance, specifically the balance of calcium and phosphorus or phosphate. The thyroid gland is also involved by balancing the body's calcium levels. So there's quite a few little organs here and they're often ones aside from the kidneys often ones that we don't think about necessarily often 
so not only are these organs at play, there are also several processes and hormones in place to maintain fluid and electrolyte balance. Now, some of you are, this is the, uh, the, the warning, the disclaimer, some of you are about to have nursing school flashback seizures um, <laughs> because we are going to talk about the renin angiotensin aldosterone cycle, but we're not yeah. going to talk about it too in depth. So don't have your seizure. Um, if you do put yourself three quarter prone and it will resolve itself as soon as we're done this section. So there are some things, one of them is antidiuretic hormone or ADH, the renin angiotensin aldosterone cycle, uh, BNP, which is the brain natriuretic, natriuretic peptide and ANP, the atrial natriuretic peptide. So let's start with AG, ADH or antidiuretic hormone. You may also hear it called vasopressin where in certain parts of the world or with certain uh, physicians, groups, uh, units, we'll call it vasopressin and not ADH. Um, again, the drug that we use, we can give vasopressin. You may also hear it called DDAVP. Uh, so lots of different words, but basically it's all the same thing. The hypothalamus produces ADH, but the posterior pituitary gland stores and releases it. The hypothalamus controls the water loss and gain that is needed by the body. Increased serum osmolality or decreased blood volume sends a message to the hypothalamus, which then sends a signal to the pituitary gland to stimulate the release of ADH. And what that does, antidiuretic hormone, like put the words together, uh, it stops the kidneys from diuresing. Or the flip side of that is it increases the kidneys reabsorption of water. Likewise, decreased serum osmolality or increased blood volume inhibits the release of ADH and causes less water to be reabsorbed. Oh, it's a positive feedback loop. Look at that. <laughs> it's kind of like a dam on a river. The body holds water when fluid levels drop and releases it when fluid levels rise, if you're managing your dam properly. <laughs> <laughs> Next, let's talk about the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone process. Seizure almost over, people. The amount of renin secreted depends on blood flow and the level of sodium in the bloodstream. Water and sodium balance are closely interdependent. If blood flow to the kidneys diminish, like in hypovolemic shock, or if the amount of sodium reaching the glomerulus drops, the juxtaglomerular cells secrete more renin. Okay, so short piece there. If the salt or the water ain't coming, renin is released. Renin then stimulates the conversion of angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1, which is then converted to angiotensin 2 via the angiotensin converting enzyme. Okay, so first thing turns into 1, it then turns into 2 through the ACE, enzyme. angiotensin yes. converting enzyme, which is important to call it ACE there because you've probably heard of drugs named. ACE inhibitors. Yeah. Aldosterone works to increase sodium and water reabsorption and increase potassium excretion in the urine. This entire process causes vasoconstriction and subsequent increase in blood pressure. Conversely, if blood flow to the kidneys increases, or if the amount of sodium reaching the glomerulus increases, juxtaglomerular cells secrete less renin. A drop-off in renin secretion reduces vasoconstriction, through all that negative feedback of all those other hormones and helps to normalize blood pressure. So 
a little bit about some of the drugs. When you think about this, it helps you to understand why patients are given certain drugs to treat blood pressure. Diuretics, so there's thiazide, loop, and potassium sparing diuretics, work on different parts of the kidney nephrons. And again, that's probably a whole other podcast itself is on diuretics. You should write that one down, Monique. Um, <laughs> work on different parts of the kidney nephrons and tubules to remove excess water and sodium to decrease pressure on the walls of the blood vessels. So yeah, it makes you not reabsorb the water, therefore less volume, therefore your blood pressure goes down, although you have less volume. So that may or may not be a good thing. ACE inhibitors or angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors help by preventing the angiotensin, which causes vasoconstriction. Okay, so if we stop that, it, it decreases vasoconstriction, which means our blood pressure can remain lower. However, the flip side of that is sometimes you need vasoconstriction. And so those may impact that. There is another newer class of drugs, angiotensin II receptor blockers, or the ARBs, they're called, ARBs. Those block angiotensin II, thus blocking vasoconstriction as well, and all of that decreases blood pressure. So you can either get an ACE inhibitor, which kind of sticks itself as the middleman um, blocking there, or the angiotensin II receptor blockers. Either way, you're kind of in that whole angiotensin cycle thing. And I'm talking with my hands, and of course, nobody can see it. <laughs> But Monique's and the other thing is, as you're talking, I am thinking, God, you know, we should talk about blood pressure medication and why people choose one and, or the other. Um, 100%. So maybe that should be another podcast. Anyway, so finally, we're going to talk about the hormones BNP and ANP and their role in fluid and electrolyte balance. So BNP um, is a hormone made in the heart ventricles in response uh, to increased stretching. When stimulated, BNP works to increase sodium and water excretion to urine. This leads to decreased blood volume and blood pressure. ANP is a hormone made in the right atrium of the heart. Your, your, can you drop that down a bit? Cause I can't see the end of it, darling. Oh, thank you. We have you, a shared If you screen. haven't been able to tell we're on Zoom sharing a screen. Yeah, exactly. You know, Cause COVID we're won't go the, away. Yeah, exactly. Landon sharing the screen, but uh, our pictures are on the side and I can't read uh, the words that are hiding where our faces are. So anyway, ANP is a hormone made in the right atrium of the heart in response to increased stretching. Just like BNP, ANP works to increase sodium and water excretion by the urine. This leads to decreased blood volume and blood pressure. So I just want to take a little pause here to try to explain the difference between osmolality or osmolarity, because you may have heard both of these terms used interchangeably. Osmolarity is the measure of solute concentration per unit volume of solvent. It is not the same as tonicity. Osmolarity takes into account all of the solute concentrations, not just the ones that, that can't cross the semi-permeable membrane. Osmolality is the measure of solute concentration per unit mass of solvent. If we compare this to something that we know, like coffee, Interesting that you asked them to buy us coffee. But if we compare this to something that we know like coffee, let us start by reminding you about the definitions of solvents and solutes. A solvent is a substance that can dissolve a solute. If you put sugar in your coffee, coffee is the solvent and sugar is the solute. Solutes are measured in weight. Osmolality is a measure of osmoles of solute per kilogram of solvent. Using our coffee anal analog, um, 
this would be, did I just say analog? Yeah. Analogy. I'm sorry. Using our coffee analogy, this would be grams of sugar dissolved in kilograms of coffee. Compare that to osmolarity, which is the measure of osmoles of solute per liter of solution. This time we're dissolving our grams of sugar into a liter of coffee. The measurement or calculation of osmolarity or osmolality in humans are practically identical. There's only half a percentage difference between them. So for all intents and purposes, this means that we can consider osmolarity and osmolality to be the same clinically. And you will often hear the terms used interchangeably in medicine. This is technically incorrect, but practically they're close enough in most clinical uh, scenarios. I don't know why, what really, I'm a word smithing person and- Really? Yeah, I know I'm being a little bit anal retentive about that, but I just want people to understand the difference. You also rouse your patients. Yes. You oh, did I? You do not arouse them. Yes. <laughs> okay. you, you like the specifics of words, I can tell. Yes, I do. <laughs> For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.